It is Tuesday, January 26th. I'm Guy Adami, Dan Nathan on the other side of the glass. This is the macro setup brought to you by Nadex, the premier U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads, and knockouts. Today, we're going to be joined by a very special guest, Peter Bookbar, chief investment officer of the Bleakley Advisory Group. So much to talk about, but Dan, how are you today? Doing fantastic, Guy. I mean, we're literally rounding the corner on the month of January here. It feels like it went by in a snap. As far as markets are concerned, it seems like a lot of a continuation of what we saw in the back half um, of 2020. You know, massive outperformance by the NASDAQ. Um, again, the S&P 500 doing fine. And then you've seen a re-rotation maybe out of some of those kind of older economy sorts mm-hmm. of names. You know, it's kind of interesting when, when I say that old economy. What do you start thinking of? That's kind of your economy. If I were to say old economy, it's kind of like, uh, right? You got that Inger, here? Ingersoll, Rand, yeah, General yeah, Electric, yeah, yeah. United Technologies, you know, sort of Rust Belt, Rust Belt stuff. But I this is the most important week for earnings, the biggest week for earnings yeah. um, in, in the quarter. I'm, you're talking about, in my opinion, not to get too granular here, but I think it's going to be one of the most fascinating earnings releases that Facebook has ever had. For a myriad of reasons, I think the numbers are going to be tremendous. It's the stock, the way the stock reacts in the wake of it, I think is going to be interesting. You saw Apple trade up to all-time highs. Everything has the NASDAQ on autopilot here, but there's so many things to continue to be concerned about. And, oh, by the way, I know we want to talk about this, but the gamification of the market, Oof. which we've talked about for, for months. Look at you, just give me a woo. That is Whoa. here in spades over the last three or four. Well, let's let, let's talk about that real quickly. I mean, obviously, we have you know um, we have six stocks in the Nasdaq 100 that make up about 45. percent You know what they are? It's Facebook, it's Microsoft, it's Apple, Google, Amazon, Tesla. We call them F maggot here, um, and then they also make up about 24 percent of the S and P 500. As you just mentioned, Apple made a new all time high. It's up about eight percent on the year. When you look aside from the Tesla, those other five names had really been going sideways for the better mm-hmm. part of the last few months. We saw that rotation into those old economy stocks. We saw the Russell 2000 small caps, industrials, energy, financials really kind of lead the rally since the, the election. So I think it was really interesting. And we talked about it a little bit last week that all of a sudden when there started to be some trepidation about the size of stimulus slash relief, people went just balls in, you know, back whoa. into the, whoa, like you know, uh, uh, those major tech stocks again. And, and I think deemed to be defensive. But on the flip side of that, look at this article. We've seen two in the last couple of days, but this one from the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. talking about, um, you know, options trading, small dollar trading. They're interviewing a kid from Syracuse University, a mm-hmm. student Cute. there talking about how he only trades the calls. You know why? Because I, I, I didn't really get this in shorter periods of time. It's a bit of a thrill. It's all that sort of stuff. I thought that was it really interesting in the journal. They had, um, you know, the put call ratio, um, you know, data showing that calls are just outpacing puts kind of massively here. What's your take on this? And we also have this New York Times article that followed up, you know, within 24 hours of this showing put call ratios at 20 year lows. You know, listen, usually there's skew relative, um, you know, f- versus the versus puts to calls. It's, it's skewed towards puts in this market. Everybody wants calls um, and they just think that there's a never ending upside to some of these really fast moving high valuation names. Well, you think about it, Dan. Last year, in 2020, there were 10 million new uh, brokerage accounts created. Six million of those were Robinhood accounts. And for most of those people, if not all of them, outside a couple of brief periods of time, 
they've never seen the market go down. So they buy a stock, it goes up the next day, and they say to themselves, this is an easy game. And then it manifests itself into exactly what you're talking about, this belief that why buy puts? Why bother buying something? Why bother paying that insurance premium when there's never going to be a fire, when there's never going to be a tornado, when there's never going to be a storm? We might as well get the upside here. And vol is cheap enough where if things do go our way, we're going to take advantage of it. But that vol skew, that put call ratio skew that you speak of is extraordinarily scary. And quickly, and again, you know, I, I feel like I'm becoming a bit of a broken record, but we've seen the VIX move over the last month or so from 21 to 30 on a couple different Mondays in a straight line on a rather benign market day. And to me, that tells you the VIX is on a hair trigger. And even yesterday, Monday the 25th, uh, we saw the VIX spike up north of 26 on, again, a rather benign day. That speaks to me of this underlying current of just complacency. And any little bit of news, I think, is going to trigger this thing. And I absolutely yeah. think over the next couple of months, Dan, you're going to see a 40 handle on the VIX. Well, here's the pushback, I would just say, Guy, is that you know last week we had one of the first major tech names to report. It was Netflix. Um, the stock had been literally in a range you know, between 500 and 550 for the prior few months. They have better expected numbers, or at least on some metrics, um, they, they kind of got free cash flow um, positive for the year, which was unexpected. And the stock's up 15% the next day. Now, it's mm-hmm. filled in a bit of that gap. But I guess my point is, is that when you see that sort of price action, it kind of validates the kind of Robin Hood options trader um, in a way. So it's really, I think this week and into next week will be very telling for the direction of major um, mega cap tech over the next few months, because the question really is, is that, you know, um, are we going to kind of digest some of the pull forward that we saw in 2020 that made these companies just kind of, um, you know, really win the pandemic for all intents and, and purposes and kind of stretch valuations. I know you've mentioned that forward S&P valuation uh, PE at 23 times, historically very expensive. So at some point, if we see guidance for 2021, or at least what we see uh, in the next quarter or so is kind of um, doesn't suggest that we should be bidding up valuations that much higher, we could see greater digestion. And we could see some of these Robinhood traders um, learning what a put does. What does a put do? Yeah. It gives you the right to sell a stock at some point at a certain price in the future. It gives you the right but not the obligation. You have oh, to remember to say that, Dan. See, I'm an old options guy. That's like very 1970s stuff. But as yeah. usual, I digress. And, you know, again, not to get granular uh, uh, one more time, but just let's mention Apple because I think it's important. And you talk about this yeah. all the time. Not a lot of EPS growth there. Now, five years ago, the reason on Apple was uh, first and foremost valuation. Traded anywhere from 12 to 14 times forward earnings. And when you back out the cash they had on hand, it was cheaper than that. But as we sit here today, you're talking yep. about a stock that's now trading at 32 times next year's numbers, which is extraordinary for a myriad of reasons, not least of which uh, a paltry EPS growth. Now, it's all great. Yeah. Apple's the greatest company on the planet. I know it's going to $3 trillion market cap. You, you own it. You don't trade it. I understand all those things. But you've said it a number of times. And you look over the last 10 years, it's two or three different times where Apple's had a significant pullback of 30% pretty much in a straight line. So to think the stock doesn't go down is foolish. And therefore to think the NASDAQ can't sort of reverse at a certain point is foolish as well, Dan. 
Yeah. So let's just hit one thing. And it's not really politics, but I think it's something that's obviously driving the market here. Um, you know, over the last um, week or so, there's been some volatility around the scope or or, or the idea of how big um, a stimulus slash, uh, slash relief plan will be, whether it will be bipartisan, that sort of thing. And I think that's obviously a really important point if you think about it. Um, What's your take here? I mean, the way I see it is, is that while I think whether the the stimulus plan is, you know, a trillion or two trillion doesn't really matter. I think the most important thing for the Biden administration, for the economy, and thus the market will really be the, the, the scope of this vaccine rollout, whether they can get this thing turned around and going in the right direction. Because until we have that going, until we have some level of confidence about when this country will reach herd immunity, the economy will really never fully be open. And risk assets that are trading off the back of the stimulus and rates and all this sort of stuff we're going to talk about will really, uh, you know, it, they'll only get the clarity that yeah. they need, whether the valuations are worthwhile if we feel like we are on that path to, um, to, to inoculation. So this is my view on that. Obviously, uh, we want this population to be, to get their vaccines, to be at a point that where we have the herd immunity sooner rather than later. Totally yeah. get it. You know, good for Pfizer, good for Moderna, and it appears as though good for Johnson & Johnson. All these things seem to be happening in unison, which is a great thing. And I do think at a certain point, you know, hiccup there or so aside, this is going to come off. And, and hopefully by the summer, we have some semblance of normalcy. But with that said, you know, there's a lot of downside to that as well. And what's the downside? Well, the pent up demand that everybody talks about, the fact that the stimulus keeps being poured on. You're talking about potentially lighting a match on top of what is a powder keg. And you saw some of the home builder numbers today. I mean, the home, yeah. the, the home numbers, case show uh, price index numbers were through the roof. So there is inflation everywhere. And, and to your point, oh. when this comes to when this comes to um, manifest itself, you know, if things do work out by the end of the summer, it's the, you're going to be you're going to be wishing um, that, that you had two and a half percent inflation, because I think it's going to be closer to four and a half, five. And we're going right. well, to have let's say talk about let, that. Yeah, let's save that for Peter. That's right in his wheelhouse. Let's hit the SPX chart here real quickly. You know, it's been on a bit of a runaway breakout since, um, you know, late November here. We know that prior high of September 6th in the S&P 500 um, was, uh, you know, just below 3,600 here. We tried to get a, above it in November on the vaccine announcement by Pfizer. We kind of banged around for a few more weeks and then we kind of broke out um, in early December here. You look at that chart, we know where um, that support is down near 3,550 at the breakout level um, mm-hmm. from late November. We have a 50-day moving average at 3,700. We have 3550, the the 100 day moving average, and then we have 3335 is the 200 day, which also seems to be the low from September and the low from early November. At least that's where it lines up. You know, a run of the mill correction if we have you know more palpitations about the the size of stimulus. Um, where where do you get back to that 100 day guy at like 3550 in the S and P 500? I think that I think that makes perfect sense. But we, we've talked about this a couple times now. The fact that where I think um, some 15 percent or so in the S and the S and P 500 above the 200 day moving average. I mean, yeah. you're getting into nosebleed territory and territory that we haven't seen in quite some time. And the market does mean revert at a certain point. And the problem here is the higher we go, I think the more drastic the sell-off is going to be and the more complacency makes its way into the market, the more drastic the sell-off is going to be. So if you're bullish, which most people are, you're hoping 
to see a pullback just to take some of the froth out of this market. And with each passing day that we don't see it, it just makes the inevitable more and more worse. So I think to your point, the 100 day makes a lot of sense. I think that's 3550 or so. You can do the math. That's probably 10 percent. But the ultimate support comes in the form of the 200 day, which, as you mentioned, also coincides with the low we saw in September and I believe early November, Dan. Yeah, so let's go to the NASDAQ 100. And we're looking at the NASDAQ 100 um, just because obviously, you know, those those six names that we referenced make up nearly half the weight. I mean, that's what's going on here. Um, and so, you know, we did see a broadening out um, in the NDX, but then we saw this kind of, as we mentioned, this re-rotation in mega cap tech. It's on a runaway breakout. Obviously, semis have been massive um, outperformers. Valuations getting um, a little stretched there. T- T- uh, TSM, Taiwan Semi, becoming a massive component um, of the SMH, the ETF that tracks um, the semi group here. But you look at this and you see a really very orderly um, breakout here, um, you know, series of, of higher highs and higher lows, that sort of thing. And then it gets you back to that 12,500 on a pullback, which would be um, about 100 uh, points lower here. But then that 100 um, day moving average down um, at about 12,000. And then all the way down there. Can you see that yellow line, guy? Yeah, oh, it's I about 11,075 11, is that 200-day moving average. That's that's about 20% below. Um, that's pretty extraordinary. What's your take on the NASDAQ 100? And we are going to have some clarity here. We know that we have Microsoft reporting this week. We're going to have Apple. We're going to have Facebook. We're going to have Amazon. Um, and we're going to have Alphabet um, You know, the week after that. We're likely to get um, some very good clarity about uh, whether or not investors are looking to pay these sorts of valuations for some of the big names on the planet. Well, when we come back this time next week, we're going to have a lot more clarity in terms of where this thing is headed. And it all comes down to, listen, you mentioned names, but Alphabet's had a heroic move since the last earnings report, justifiably so. Amazon's gotten off the mat. You've seen, we talked about Apple earlier. Uh, You mentioned Netflix, Microsoft, people will say valuation. But then, you know, the thing about Microsoft, and this gives me a bit of pause. I mean, IBM's release that came out a week and a half, two weeks ago. I'm not comparing the companies, but, you know, yeah. their growth in cloud was only about 10 percent. Now, maybe that suggests that Microsoft is just kicking their rear end. Or maybe that suggests that you're going to see continued slowdown in the cloud business of Microsoft. Um, it's just something to think about as we go into earnings. But you look at this and, you know, you talk about a witch's brew. You got all these companies reporting. You got froth like you haven't seen probably in 20 years. And to me, that sets up for a bit of a reversal. I've been saying it for a while, but I'll continue to say it because the higher we go, the scarier it gets, Dan. Yeah, I kind of feel like, listen, let's go to this VIX chart. You've been you kind of plotting this thing over the last few months. And and, and obviously you think that, um, you know, equities um, are, you know, price to perfection here. The inability for the VIX to kind of go below those February levels where it broke out right before the market crashed 35% is pretty interesting. While it says that there's a lot of small uh, market players who are just kind of bidding up calls, um, there's also, I think, a good bit of kind of very smart uh, institutional hedging going on, which might be the reason why you see this thing pinned above um, 20, the inability for it to go lower. I'm not really sure how you trade that. I think um, it's just another input as it relates um, to sentiment here. Um, you know, what's your take on the VIX here? And is it really an important input as you think about trading the equity markets? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think you trade it. You've mentioned it a number of times. But to me, it, you know, you're looking for levels as to where the market yeah. is setting up. And that 21 and a half level on the VIX seems to be a level that every time the VIX trades down to that, that's when we see these minor sell-offs in the broader market. 
And I mention it because, again, I said it earlier, you've seen two moves now over the last month of 21 and a half to 30 on a couple different Mondays in a VIX on rather benign market days. And yeah. again, to me, that's just suggestive of a VIX that it's a hair trigger, complacency at levels that it shouldn't be in this environment. And if you do actually have a meaningful sell-off, that VIX, which traded up to 30, I think could absolutely see the 40 handle that we saw back in June. So no, oh. don't trade the VIX, but understand that at these yeah. current levels, it is suggestive of a short-term market top, Dan, Nathan. Yeah. So before we get to rates, we're going to bring in Peter Bookvar and, and I'll let you do that. You know, Peter, um, who writes daily on the book report, I read it every day. I don't know how you could um, trade these markets actively and not look at it. Um, you know, he's been uh, commenting on the fact that this, um, you know, combination with with low rates, even with them moving higher. And we're going to talk about that with him. Um, you know, expectations for inflation, the Fed have said they're going to let it run hot. You know, you put all this together, even with valuations in the equity markets kind of high, you get this vaccine seen rollout going, you get the stimulus, whether it's a trillion or 1.9 or whatever the number, we know what the market is right now, right? It's kind of 900 at 1.9, somewhere in the middle, you get the vaccine rollout going better than expected. And that will be so much more powerful than mm -hmm. um, any form of stimulus we can have. So, you know, I'll pass it back to you. I think that's a, a good segue here before we get into rates, dollar, gold, that sort of thing. Are you a fan of the band, the great band Led Zeppelin, Dan Nathan? Oh, you know it. You know it, guys. Well, um, what, their last studio album, which I believe came out in 1979, In Through the Outdoor, uh, one of the great yeah. songs is called All of My Love. And one of the lines in that song, Dan, is <laughs> one voice is clear above the din. And I mentioned that because you mentioned it earlier. If you're in our world, there are a few people that you have to read. And one of them is Peter Bookbar, author of the book report, chief investment officer of the Bleakley Group and general badass friend of ours, <laughs> Peter, welcome. Thank you, Guy. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate you guys having me on your show. It's always great having you. So you heard the conversation uh, we're having. Where are we right? Where are we wrong? And then let's get into the rates and the dollar and all the things that you're looking at in your world, Peter. Well, I think you covered all the important sort of potential inflection points, uh, particularly Apple, since we know with that being the biggest company and then reporting this week, uh, having it run up going into earnings certainly raises the bar. The one thing I'm, I'm watching with Apple is supply. The semiconductors are in shortage right now because they're not making enough because the auto sector is now a huge customer competing with laptops, data centers, iPhones. And, uh, and other tech products. So I'm curious to see what Apple has to say about their supply chain and whether they have uh, enough inventory. But yeah, as Apple goes, so goes uh, a lot of that, those technology companies. And you mentioned Microsoft, I think, reports uh, tonight. Uh, with respect to uh, uh, interest rates, uh, we're going to obviously see where, where the inflation numbers go. Uh, I'm of the belief that they're going higher. I think that inflation is not coming. Inflation is here. And uh, how that plays out through the year will determine where rates go. And I think in trying to figure out where the stock market's going to go, I think the biggest test is what multiple we're going to put on earnings in the economy. With the vaccine, and, 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 and you guys both said it well, the best stimulus plan we can have right now is further rolling out that vaccine. That would exceed any money that's spent out of Washington. So getting the economy right this year in the back half Getting earnings right, I think, is going to be a lot easier than figuring out what multiple to pay on that. 
if inflation rises further and if interest rates on the long end rise further. Because as we get through the year with this vaccine, the Fed's going to be talking about tapering. Whether they want to or not, they're going to have no choice but to be talking about tapering. Well, we're trading at 23 times consensus estimates for 2021 right now. What happens if you trade 20 times or 18 times or 17 times with that on that same $170 uh, estimate right now, well, you can still get 170, but you're going to have lower stock prices if mm-hmm. you have a lower multiple. So, so Peter, that, that's a great point. Um, you know, and you use the term tatra, t- uh, taper, it brings us back to the taper tantrum of 2013, right? When we saw the 10 year US Treasury yield get above 3%, we saw a bit of a taper tantrum back in late 2018. The stock market sold off 20% um, very quickly. And so that makes your point that investors will readjust, re rate, right? If they view the, the likelihood of higher rates going forward. But the Fed, gave in so quickly on both instances. And so I'm just curious how you think about that. We have a couple charts that I want to run you through. We have a 10-year U.S. Treasury yield chart, a a one-year chart that shows a really nice uptrend from the August lows when they were trading about 50 bips. You see it's held that. It's it's been above 1% um, for the last few weeks or so. But really, you know, you you talk about higher rates. I just, I'm not so certain how we get there. And I'm not so certain that we have a Fed really talking up higher rates at any point this year. You are much closer to this than I am, but Jerome Powell is starting to think about what his legacy looks like. And is it going to be that he caused another market panic by talking about tapering um, by tapering this rate environment? Well, you can be sure that the Fed will overstay their welcome with easing. Yeah. When over the last decade plus, and it's not just the Fed, it's all these central bankers, what has given them license to do whatever they've wanted to do, zero rates, negative rates, and all the QE, was very low inflation. That, in their mind, gave them the ability to do whatever they wanted. If that inflation story changes, and yes, while they do want higher inflation, and they will tolerate above 2% because of this whole symmetry thing, if Guy is right, which I think he will, you start to get three, you start to get four plus percent type inflation, that's more than just, you know, base effect. That is something that becomes more embedded. And that becomes then kryptonite to central bankers. It takes away their ability to be flexible. It forces their hand instead of them freely moving their hands. So it'll be the long end of the yield curve that sort of speaks about their thoughts about growth, inflation, the vaccine. And they will they will respond, even if Powell talks about no taper, even if Powell keeps rates at zero through 2024, like he said he will. The long end will respond instead. You have to keep in mind with the long ends here. Foreigners are no longer net purchasers of U.S. Treasuries. Their ownership of the U.S. Treasury market is only down to about 35 percent. It was as much as, as 50 percent not too long ago. So all these growing debts and deficits in the U.S. is being financed by Fed QE, uh, banks that are buying a lot of treasuries on their balance, putting on their balance sheets, pension funds, insurance companies, and so on. So if so, it, 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 so without that foreign buying, you could see a reaction in the market to inflation that sort of ignores whatever Jay Powell wants to do on the short end and mm-hmm. whatever he wants to do with tapering. 
because there is such a huge supply of treasuries this year that their QE is not even going to be big enough for all that supply. You know, obviously, Peter, you're preaching to the choir when you're talking to me. And I'm, as I said earlier, I'm a huge fan of your work. But, you know, the market seems to be of this belief that when the Fed says we're going to let inflation run hot for a long, that they somehow, that the Fed can somehow control that. And we're not going to see them make a move until the back half of 2023. But I think if I'm right and if you're right, and this thing starts to manifest itself on the back end of this year, on the back of vaccinations, they're going to have no choice. And so to think they, again, the hubris to think you can control the outcome of this, having poured the amount of stimulus or liquidity they have in the system is maddening to me. And the fact that the market seems to believe it is even more maddening. So I do think there's inflation in all the wrong places. And I do think we're on the verge of not runaway inflation, but inflation running way in excess of what the Fed is going to be comfortable with. And I think that's, to me, is the existential risk to the marketplace right now. I, I agree 100%. I think that is the biggest risk because a lot of this is all intertwined. When you think about where bubbles are and where bubbles are created by excessively low rates, it's the biggest bubble in the history of financial markets is in bonds. You know, Obviously, it's mostly in Europe because of the negative interest rates that are there and the trillions of dollars of bonds that are, that are yielding below zero. But you can argue that the U.S. credit markets are an extreme bubble and not just where Treasury yields are, but you look at investment grade where the spread to Treasuries is less than 1%. You look at high yield paper that some of it yields less than 5% uh, for that. And then if that's the case, then everything obviously priced off interest rates by, is, is a byproduct in bubbleicious territory. And inflation is the one thing that can disrupt all of that. And just imagine, and taking, Guy, your thoughts one step further, imagine the political hot water the Fed puts themselves in. If all the politicians in Congress, their constituency is calling them saying, my food bills are up 7%, mm-hmm. this is up 10%, this is up 5%. This is a potentially messy situation if the Fed gets the inflation that they so root for, because it's not just going to stop at 2% in this symmetric way. It is going north of 3%. And again, it'll be more than just base effects from 2020 COVID impact, it's going to be something more embedded. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, listen, just to take the other side of that, we obviously know that one of the biggest um, forces in our economy globally right now is really technology. We know that the deflationary pressure on so many goods and services that have placed. So, you know, I know that both of you guys have said that, you know, the Fed is not measuring inflation properly. We know that they kind of moved the goalpost right earlier last year when they talked about what they're willing to let inflation run. Um, I, I, Peter, I want to point you to a 20-year chart of the U.S. Um, 10 your treasury yield, you talk about that bubble. I mean, we thought we had generational lows at 1.4 um, in 2012, at 2016 at the same level, 2019 even, we had a nice bounce off of there. And then when COVID hit, we just broke and you know it was lights out. I, I look at that chart and I say to myself, you know, what's going to happen to risk assets if we start moving that have been priced off of this rate environment, you know, and then the expectation for further QE, further stimulus, that sort of thing. If we see the U.S. 10-year Treasury breaching that kind of one four one five level, um, you know, what, what's going to happen to the equity markets if we if we see that? You're absolutely right. And we get the question all the time, is that at what level do things start to break? And yeah. it's really impossible to answer because you only know when things start to break. But 
like you said, we're talking about valuations that are excessive on an absolute basis. But we know, we all know, because we hear it all the time, they get rationalized by, yeah, it's okay because rates are so low. I mean, even Jay Powell in his last press conference was asked about the high valuations in equities. And he said, yeah, well, I get it, but it's okay because rates are so low. But what happens if, to your point, rates aren't as so low? And yeah, on an absolute basis, you can say one and a half percent, one and three quarters yeah. is a very low level of interest rates. But when you're, when you're magnifying that against a massive amount of debt that we've accumulated, every yeah. basis point in change in interest rate has a big dollar amount when you multiply it by the amount of debt out there. Yep. All right. And just real quickly to wrap up rates here, I just want to show a 30-year chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. It kind of shows the upper left, bottom right. And obviously, you get through that level that we just talked about, that resistance level. Let's call it 1.5%. You know, there's plenty of room to get back to two and then maybe two and a half. But again, if you just look at the history of yields here in in the U.S. and globally, um, it almost seems, especially when you consider the amount of debt, like you just mentioned, the inability for rates ever go much higher, um, especially I know that you what you have to say about inflation, but yet the counterbalance is that massive deflationary force of technology that's seeping into almost every industry. Um, I know Guy wants to segue to the dollar, which is a good one. Guy, get in there because we need Peter's take on uh, uh, on the greenback here. No, and to your point, Dan, to, in, technology is the greatest deflationary force in the history of mankind. And that's one of the reasons that Real inflation is being masked, but that's another conversation for another time. But, Peter, the flip side of this rate uh, conversation is the U.S. dollar. Now, we have seen the dollar bounce over the last week, week and a half or so. But I'm of the belief, and you can take the other side, that the dollar is, is due for a significant move lower this year into the back half of the year. And, you know, this basically rising rate environment with a falling dollar environment, that in and of itself is extraordinarily inflationary. And the fact that the Fed doesn't point it out is equally maddening. Oh, and it's their policies that have created this. But, you know, what do you think about the dollar here? What makes sense in terms of a move as we see that basically the dollar index either side of 90, give or take? So I do I do agree. And, and, and what you just said about falling dollar and rising rates, that's what happens in emerging markets. That's when money flees a country and yields go up, asset prices fall, and currencies drop. So you start to get that here in the U.S. That is a major regime change mm-hmm. in, 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 in action. And when you look at the dollar, uh, you know, I look at it in relationship to rising debts and deficits. You can overlay a 20-plus year chart and look at U.S. budget deficit Uh, over time and the U.S. dollar. And when it widens out, the dollar weakens. When it narrows, the dollar tightens or or rises. Uh, The U.S. uh, current account and U.S. trade deficit, as it widens, the dollar weakens because there's more dollars going overseas that are then converted to local currencies. Well, the U.S. trade deficit is just shy of an all-time record high, which coincides also with this weakness in the dollar. Also, real rates, because the inflation stats are still very low in Europe, the U.S. actually has lower real rates than Europe, which when you, you wouldn't necessarily think that immediately because you see negative rates there, but that's also a, a depressant on the dollar. So the only rallies that I think we're going to see on the dollar are going to be short-term counter trend bounces 
and nothing more. Uh, the big picture trend in the dollar is down, and that, yes, will, will, will lead to quicker inflation. We're already beginning to see that in uh, the last import price number, which saw a, a multi-year uh, rate of change increase. Um, and, and I think that dollar, dollar weakness will continue. And initially, people would say, okay, well, that's good. It's good for U.S. exporters. But we're a consumer-dependent economy that relies on the purchasing power of its consumers. And you get a weaker dollar, you reduce, reduce that purchasing power, you raise the cost of living, and that actually reduces economic growth in the aggregate. I'd yeah, say, that's a, Dan, that, do you hear That's this, a great Dan? point. I mean, I, mean, do you hear I know, this? guy, you I know. <laughs> but this is, I mean, listen, I know you guys are in lockstep here. Um, you know, Guy's been saying this, Peter, um, probably since the last time you came on too. You know, you sell every rally in the dollar. We have that Dixie chart. Um, every rally has been sold. And now it can't even get back to that one year downtrend. We know that 92 is massive technical resistance. I want to point you to a 20 year chart and I want to get your take because obviously the rise of the euro has a lot to do with this relative kind of stagnation in the dollar, right? over the last 20 years, if you think about it. And I look at this Dixie chart and I look at um, where we are, the lows in 2018, the lows that we just kind of made here. They're actually at support going back 10 years to the high in 09, the high in 2010. And the average price of the Dixie over the last 20 years has been about 90, right? So are you really calling for a massive obliteration? Um, Because, you know, a break of support here and you get yourself back to the mid 80s, possibly 80, which was a level where we took off from when the Fed started to taper, um, right, and to kind of end QEs or all that sort of stuff in the mid part of the last decade. If you if Washington continues this this spending blowout, which they will, so even if they don't spend 1.9 trillion, even if it's a trillion, this is not the only spending bill of substance that we're going to see this year, it's gonna be followed by some follow ups. So if and, and what you're doing is it's not just, okay, you're spending a lot of money uh, temporarily. You, you, you are embedding a, uh, a, a more a structural rise in the, de- in the budget deficit relative to GDP. And that is going to be continuously dollar negative. And when you look at the U.S. economy and you look at this chart, you can argue that the U.S. economy is really is outperformed, certainly Europe. You wonder, like, how come the euro is not below one? They have negative interest rates. Uh, they, they have, they're, 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 they're buying every bond. They've broken their bond market. They have very little growth. Uh, there's political issues seemingly all the time in different countries. How does the euro trade as well as it does? Well, they have a current account and trade deficit with us. So that is a natural bid to the, to the euro. I mean, our deficits mean that there's more dollars leaving the U.S. than coming here. And that is a natural pull downward on the value of that dollar. And I think that's what people really need to focus on here is the main influence on the direction of the dollar. So yes, I'm expecting a break here. And yet, could we get a bounce if the stock market pulls back? Can we get a a counter trend bounce in the dollar? For sure. But I think big picture, that dollar index is gonna break that 90 level convincingly. And instead of being support, it's gonna turn into resistance. Peter, I don't know if you're by the kitchen where you are, but I want you to pull out your Reynolds wrap, your aluminum foil, the tin foil, and then real <laughs> quickly talk about gold and Bitcoin in the final few minutes we have left. Obviously, gold can't get out of its own way. Bitcoin went from basically 20000 to 41000 back to 30000 uh, all in the course of seemingly a month, month and a half. You know, What are your take on those two things quickly in the last few minutes? 
Well, full disclosure, I actually own stock in Reynolds Consumer Products. <laughs> so they also make hefty bags, hefty garbage bags too. So uh, Golden Sulphur, I think, has been consolidating the, uh, the summer rally. And now that real rates, negative real rates have sort of stabilized, I think Golden Silver have, has done the same thing, consolidating, backing and filling and so forth. But if you think that the Fed is going to be aggressively raising interest rates and they're going to be aggressively ending QE and Washington, D.C. is going to get religion on spending, then you should sell your gold. If you feel the opposite, then you should expect higher gold prices. And with silver, half the demand for silver is the industrial side. If you think the U.S. economy is going to have a nice pickup in the back half of this year, if you think silver is an important raw material into electric batteries and, and, and solar panels and, uh, and uh, wind turbines, then silver will have a nice mixture of industrial and precious metal use. With Bitcoin, my only issue with Bitcoin is I understand the bull case because I'm bullish on gold and silver for the same reasons. I just don't know how to value Bitcoin. I don't know if Bitcoin should be worth 200000 20000 40000 or $400. I just don't know. Yeah, nor, it's interesting. Nor you know, I listened to a pod. I listened to a podcast the other day with the Winkle V's, um, and their case, and just kind of dumbing it down a little bit, is that if you buy the store of value that, that gold has had for the last couple hundred years or couple thousand years, excuse me, um, and you buy into the stuff that maybe is above our pay grade of why a cryptocurrency might do the same thing going forward, the scarcity, the ease of moving around, that sort of thing. You know, they're, they're saying that, that there's no reason why it couldn't have um, easily surpassed gold's market cap, which would place the thing, I think their target price is like at 200,000 or so. I mean, there's lots of different ways of doing it. I, I mean, these are bull market arguments. I, I, I will defer to the people that have gotten in there early and never wavered. And, and they are obviously two of them. Um, but I think that is kind of an interesting way. We have, we have a chart re- really quickly, Peter. And I just want, before we leave here, um, when you look at that from a sentiment standpoint, the five-year chart of Bitcoin, people thought that 20 20,000 back in 2000, late 17, early 18, you know, might have been, you know, an all time top of a, a, class, a classic mania, that sort of thing. You know, not only did we go from 5,000 to 10,000 last year, but then in a matter of months, we went from 10,000 to 20, it consolidated there, broke out, and then went from 20 to 40. So here we are back near 31,000 or something like that. What is this, just just your quick take on what that is telling you? Forget about whether you want to you know, be in gold or digital gold or this. What is it telling you about the risk appetite in the current market environment? Well, it's extraordinary because you can add you know, Tesla and GameStop yeah. and recently Bed Bath & Beyond. Yeah, it's it's and again, putting aside the merits of it, as you as you say, it's just a level of risk appetite, of of speculation, of of where people want to roll the dice. And yeah, there's going to be the loyal following of Bitcoin that's going to buy and hold this, but there's no question that there's a lot of speculation just because it's going up. I mean, I am at a wealth management firm. We deal with a lot of individuals, and I only get the calls on Bitcoin when it's at forty thousand, not when it's at five thousand. Yeah. And they're That's, calling it just because it's going up. Right. And it's, it's that behavior is no one wants to miss something. But keep in mind, and I'll leave it at this, it's not the only asset with limited supply. The supply of gold out of the ground is only growing about 1%. They aren't making any more 1952 Mickey Mantle cards, which just was auctioned off for $5.2 million, almost double from a few years ago, or Wayne Gretzky cards. It's not the only asset that is in limited supply. 
And you know what? They're not making any more Peter Book bars either. And so, listen, <laughs> we appreciate your time. You're a gentleman to come on. Thank we know you, you had a meeting today. You cut short your meeting to come on with us. That's Peter Book Bar, Great author pleasure. of The Book Report. You're Dan Nathan at Risk Reversal. I'm Guy Adami. Thanks for joining us. I want to thank our presenting sponsor, Nadex, the premier U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads, and Dan? Knockouts, brother. Damn straight. Catch you next week. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.